The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I am your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning in our first half hour is Crystal Walker. Crystal Walker is a D.C.-based lawyer, wife, and mother of four, um, who is hails from the Midwest, actually, but uh, lives in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. And she and her partner, business partner, Phoebe Thompson, are authors of Desperate in D.C., Money, Marriage, and Manners in Washington, D.C., which is a blog, which is an e-book. And now, just I was talking to Crystal right before the show, uh, is going to be published in print version very soon. So it will be available at bookstores everywhere as well. Today, because Crystal and, and Phoebe blog about everything related, I guess, to family and Washington and friends and politics, and it's, uh, they kind of mix it all together. Uh, but specifically, we're going to be talking about sexting today, instant sexting and sexting and kids, sexting and teenagers. Welcome to the show, Crystal. Nice to have you on this morning. Catherine, thank you so much for having me. So, uh, you know, your blog is great. The book is great. Um, how long have you guys been doing this, first of all? Well, really, we started um, the process about five or six years ago originally, and it was actually Phoebe's husband, Brad, who said, you guys really do good, funny emails back and forth. You should do something with this. So he, I have to give him credit, and uh, we've, we've sometimes failed to do that for uh, the men in our life, Phoebe and I, um, that he was the inspiration be- behind originally the blog and then ultimately um, the book, where we novelized some of our ideas about, you know, living on the East Coast. Well, he obviously was right. I mean, intuitively, I guess, he really had a sense that you guys could go with it, and uh, he was the motivating factor, but you've taken it really, uh, obviously, very far, and uh, I think I want to get into the sexting and and teenagers, because I know that that's a big issue. Um, Some people don't even know what it is. Uh, you know, for those of us who don't have teenagers, my kids are grown, but I, I do know what it is. But uh, I just sexting refers to sending nude or semi-nude images or sexually explicit messages over an electronic device such as a mobile phone. All right, let's talk about that in terms of our teenagers who are doing this. Why and what are the implications for all of this? Well, you know, it's it's a great question, Catherine, and uh, my kids uh, range in age from 19 down to 10, and there are four of them, uh, two boys and two girls. So um, I'd like to say I have no experience with any of this, but um, the reality is um, this exists in our world. And what it really is, I think, is a way for, you know, people who are not yet, you know, fully developed cognitively to communicate with each other. And, you know, we may recall being kids and then teens and not having, you know, every mistake we made memorialized. Um, Unfortunately, I think that's what can happen uh, in today's world with social media and with, you know, smartphones and, and sexting in particular. So, 
Um, I think they do it. But why it is as, it so appealing to the teen? You know, you talk about immature minds, and I'm thinking of Anthony Weiner, obviously, yes. but, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, kind of the political king of sexting. Um, but what, a, how do, you know, the kid, I mean, why, I guess, yes, they, it's a, they have the communication that's available that allows them to do it. So obviously you have to have that. But what about the mo- motivation? Let's be digging a little deeper. Why do you think that they do do it? And some kids don't. Right. Um, well, first of all, uh, just because you ma- mentioned Anthony Weiner, I have a caveat, which is I think the male mind doesn't fully mature till about the age of 40. So um, that that could explain yeah. that. That's obviously a joke. But uh, anyway, I think that, you know, it really is an interesting phenomenon that some kids have no interest in it and others do. I, I frankly, just in my own experience with my own kids and their friends, find it's a way to connect socially. And if kids land in the group where they're cutting edge, they tend to push those limits and want to fit in. Um, as we all know, peer pressure at that age is really often the single most important factor in their lives. So my experience with my own teens is they get involved in that kind of behavior only if their friends are doing it. And who's the one that starts it? It's, you know, hard to say. But um, I suspect that, you know, the kids who are likely to push the envelope in other areas are also the ones who are going to be sexting. So um, it's certainly something we as parents need to pay attention to. Um, and I, I do have some ideas, um, you know, imperfect as they may have been in, in my own life about how, you know, how we manage these issues. Yeah, well, you talk about managing, and you are an expert because I consider you an expert, obviously, because you're a mom and you have two boys and two girls ages 10 to 19. Um, Are you the one who, let's take your kids because you said they don't do that. How do you know they don't do that, and how do you monitor it? What do you do? I mean, 10-year-olds are different than 19-year-olds, but as I understand it, that really is kind of the range in which these kids are sexting. Right, and I would, um, the caveat is I would not say my kids have never done it. Um, I, I'm never that parent. In fact, I'm probably the one who gives them up too easily for their mistakes, which can also be a mistake, especially when you live in D.C. and very few people acknowledge their kids make mistakes. But I make mistakes, my kids make mistakes, and if we start from there, I think we're all a bit further along. But what I would say, what I, my policy in my house is if I pay for your technology, and you know, even my 19-year-old son who goes to college in L.A., um, has his technology still paid for by his parents, um, then I have access to it. So in our house, that means I have passwords um, to phones, to computers, and it doesn't mean I'm checking every day. I think that's an unrealistic goal. Um, but I do, they do know that at any, any moment I can, you know, grab their device and just take a look at what's going on. Um, the difficulty, Catherine, to be honest with you, is technology keeps moving ahead so quickly that there are certainly apps or sites that they may know of that I don't. So it's a constant challenge to stay on top of it, which is why my firm belief is that what we're really trying to do is teach our kids the values that we have so that when they go out in the world, they'll function in, you know, a respectable way. Um, I think the monitoring thing is problematic, just like forbidding your kids from ever having candy, for example. It seems to be the thing they crave. So, you know, in my house, we just do lots of talking, um, why it's inappropriate to do things like sexting, um, and we hope that... You know, as they move out into the world, I mean, my son at college, I can't possibly monitor his technology on a daily basis. Um, you hope that they're acting in a way that's in line with the values that we've talked about at home. 
So you're talking about you have to sit down, you you have to communicate with your kids one-on-one about the consequences of what they're doing, whether it's taking drugs or having real sex or sexting or whatever it is. Because as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking that, uh, I mean, I my kids were kind of like on the cusp of that kind of uh, ability to, to communicate in that way in terms of computer and the Internet. Like, what kind of a relationship? You know, I'm asking you as, I guess, a mother, like, does that set up for parents and children? I mean, you're a sophisticated mom. You live a sophisticated life in the sense you're well-educated, you're a lawyer, you have all this information, um, and you obviously, it sounds like, have a good relationship with your kids. But not everybody, you know, lives in Washington, D.C. or in the type of environment that you live in, and how do they do that? I, it, because their kids are also have their computers and they're sexting and texting, and um, it, it seems to me if you're always on top of them and you're always and you don't have the ability to sit down and really talk about, uh, you know, the, as we say, the consequences of what they're doing, but you're just telling them, don't, don't, I'm monitoring you, I'm watching your back, I mean... What, I'm just thinking about what kind of relationship does that create between parent and child? That's a yeah, long question. I, I think, <laughs> Catherine, that's a very good point, and I think that can be problematic. Um, and so I guess that's why I think that whatever your sort of, you know, technology skill level or your ability to, you know, monitor what your kids are doing, the most important piece is conversation. So uh, in my view, it's less about saying I'm, you know, watching you all the time and, hey, let's talk about this sexting story I heard on the radio. What do you think about this, and why do you think this is appropriate or not appropriate? And, um, you know, what do you see your your parents doing, um, your peers doing, and try to have those conversations. I find it often works best in the car when we're not looking directly at each other. Um, I'm often given far more information than I would otherwise, so maybe really that applies to almost any parent anywhere, um, whether or not they're able to constantly watch their children, which I think is a challenge for, for any of us in today's world. It's really about just... I think the ability to have those conversations. I agree with you, and I think I had a similar experience in terms of those conversations in the car because you're distracted. Not you aren't sitting staring at each other with this topic that's uncomfortable to talk about. I mean, sex in general is difficult for parents to talk to their kids about. Now you've added this whole other dimension, which makes it even. I, I would think it adds to the difficulty. I mean talking, having to, you know, now you're talking about sexting, just talking about sex is difficult for parents, but um, Crystal, what about the age? I mean, because as I say, your kids run the gamut. I mean, there's a difference. Be- when do you start talking about this? You've got a 10-year-old, for instance. I'm assuming that he or she is not at the point where they would be sexting. I'm making I, that assumption. Do you, yes, I yeah. think that's right, and thank goodness for that. I don't think that's probably true of every 10-year-old. Uh, mine is a girl, but she also is the youngest of four, so I would say uh, sometimes they are more development, developmentally fast-forward than, say, my eldest would have been at her age. So um, the reality, at least in our house, is she hears conversations that a 10-year-old might not otherwise hear because trying to isolate, say, my 14-year-old son um, to talk to him alone about these issues is uh, sometimes, you know, uh, very difficult to do. So it will happen, for example, on these rides home from school. Um, So we don't maybe talk explicitly about sexting, but we would talk about, you know, messages you send to your friends and you get from your friends, and she's listening to all of that. So I I would say if, if you can do it in isolation, 
prevention, then probably the appropriate time is before the age when they'd start doing it, which I think is now, um, Catherine, at the age of, say, 12 or 13. So even starting to talk about these issues at 11, I think, is is not inappropriate. Um, you know, just talk about, you know, what you believe in your house around these issues and maybe use the excuse of having heard a story or our conversation and say, wow, what have you heard about these things? And, and I don't think you have to go right to sex. You can talk more generally about conversations you have with your friends online or messages you send on your phone and why it's so important to to keep them what you consider appropriate and then maybe talk about what appropriate is. And what's their responsibility? You know, as we're talking about this, we're talking about your kids, our kids, the responsibility of the parent to their own child. But what about when your kid is 12 or 13 years old and their best friend, girlfriend, boyfriend, or just friend starts sexting them? I mean, how do, do do you tell them how do they handle that with their, a good friend? And somebody that, you know, perhaps they've known for a long time, they've gone to school with, what do they do? Do they come to you and tell you, or how do they handle that? That is a really good question, and I think it puts the kids in a very difficult position because they certainly don't want to be perceived as telling on their friend. Um, The best, I think, the best way to handle it, and, of course, you've probably heard lots of stories about, you know, pictures or messages getting forwarded and lots of kids ending up in trouble. Um, If your kids are aware of that message that, you know, this picture, this message should go no further, I think the best answer is to delete it immediately and respond to their friend that, you know, they're uncomfortable. Or to use, as I like to say, you can always use me as an excuse. So you can say, my mom uh, and or dad don't allow this. I will have my phone taken away. So I'm happy to be the bad guy there. Um, that's the conversation we have in our home, but that, I think, Catherine, is exactly the pressure point. And you hope that you've prepared your kids, and this is why I think the conversations are important, because, you know, it doesn't really matter in the end how much you've talked to them if they don't apply um, these messages in their real lives. And I think the only way to, to help them do that is to have talked about it beforehand um, and to let them know they can always come to you. But in my experience, frankly, they don't always come to you. They want to be able to manage it on their own. They think perhaps um, wrongly, as we know, that at 13 or 14 that they are master of their own universe and can manage everything. So I like to always let them know that I'm there, um, but that they should be able to you know, apply the techniques we've talked about in these conversations if I'm not. And, and Crystal, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, when this, with the sexting thing, I mean, when, uh, let's say when we were growing up, if you were, you, you, you talked to your daughters, you talked to your sons about having sex and not having sex and, and uh, choices that you make, but they may have be in a situation maybe just once that they have to handle and they do handle it on their own. But I think about this this topic of sexting, that can be a constant thing. You know, it's not just a one, you know, a one-time incident. It's, you know, constantly because they're always communicating in Facebook and Twitter. And um, so, I mean, you constantly have to be vigilant. All I can think about is the word vigilant. And, um, and that has to make it pretty difficult for these kids. 
Well, I think it does. And, and uh, you know, my, my writing partner and I like to say, especially, you know, in, some, in the large urban areas, you feel this great spotlight upon your life and your kids and how they're managing as compared to other people's kids. And um, we try to take a humorous approach to that in the book, but we have some examples of, you know, things like sexting and what do you do, especially when you know that there are people anxious to find your kid in the wrong. Um, and it is a world full of pressure in that way. So um, it, it can make you entirely too anxious if you focus on it all the time. Um, the other approach is to, you know, let go and let it happen in, in the sense that you can't control their actions all the time. So you simply have very specific rules around, say, their smartphone. And if you have any evidence um, that they've been engaging in this behavior, that they, you know, lose that technology either for a limited period of time or if it becomes a parent, they can't manage it at all, the phone is gone, which I think to a teenager is a major life crisis, frankly, because yeah. it's their main way of communicating with their friends. Yeah. Well, I think it's a major life crisis for anyone. If I leave my cell phone or I think I've left it at home, I have to go back and get it. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Uh, it's, yeah. It's a cultural thing. I think most, you know, everybody sort of, most people go into withdrawal when they don't have their cell phones. So, uh, yeah, so that is a is an issue. But give us an example, because you just kind of went through it, but you said that you had a couple examples in the book. So what were some of the examples in the book? Uh, we were talking about sexting. Yes, well, actually, one of the examples involves adults and not children, um, and it was to sort of illustrate this larger point. But uh, in the book, Phoebe's character has given away her um, husband. Brad's favorite gaming chair um, in retaliation for something he's doing. And in order to get it back from the technology geek that she has given it to, um, she's forced to sext an inappropriate picture of herself and then, of course, regrets it immediately and asks Crystal for her help in, you know, retrieving it. And the larger point here is to suggest that none of us are past doing very inappropriate things, um, even at, you know, our middle-aged advanced age. So, um, you know, we have fun with it in the sense that we try to make clear that everybody can make these mistakes, not just our kids. Um, and, and you know, it's true. I, I certainly, you know, am not sexting in my, my current life, but there is clearly an adult population that's doing it, and I'm sure that, you know, some kids are exposed to that, unfortunately. What do you do and how do you, you know, we, did, we defined, or I defined sexting in the beginning um, as sending nude or semi-nude images or sexually explicit, explicit messages. How do you define that again? I mean, like, what is a, a semi-nude picture? Maybe a picture of you in a new uh, bikini that you just bought, just, you know, that you're showing your girlfriend. Well, um, that's right. That's right. And I guess that you really have to put a context around it, Catherine. And certainly that same picture is sent to, you know, someone not your husband if you're married um, that is perhaps of the same gender would be considered a sex. So I think it's one of those, um, you know, like pornography, we know it when we see it, and I think each of us needs to understand it for ourselves. But, again, with my own kids, that's why I think it's important we talk about this kind of thing because, you know, even a message from my 14-year-old son that doesn't involve a picture but that is, you know, suggestive to a girl, you know, I want you to come over and here are the things I'd, you know, like to do with you can be obviously highly inappropriate. So... Um, I think it's one of those things you have to get a feel for, um, and really that can only happen by conversation. What about parents? Because parents come from very different places themselves, and although they hopefully they share certain values, but when parents 
are in a different or have a different sort of frame of reference for this sexting, and they don't necessarily agree um, on what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Uh, one parent may be more able to talk to the children than the other parent. Let's talk about some of those issues. Well, I think that's a really good point. Even um, my husband and I have some of that, um, Catherine. I tend to be, just probably you can tell in the conversation we're having today, more open um, about some of these issues. And I, for example, prefer that he talk to our sons about this, and I take the girls um, just to make them more comfortable. But in the end, my 19-year-old son likes to say, you know, if I have to hear about condoms one more time, I may not be able to have a functional relationship. And (laughs) frankly, that's just fine with me. (laughs) But... uh, um, the truth is, I think the parent that simply has the skills um, is going to be the one that they hear it from. So I think it's a great idea to divide and conquer if you can, but the reality is um, in relationships, people are different, and, you know, my husband's much better at some things than I am, and he manages those. I just happen to be the one that's unafraid to talk about almost any subject with anyone, so um, including my kids, much to their chagrin. So I, I think it doesn't have to start out, though, Catherine, as a conversation about, you know, sex or sexting at all. It's really about relationships and how you, you treat people with respect, um, which is, you know, another thing we try to capture in our writing because we find so often, you know, in D.C., but really I think it's applicable to almost anyone universally anywhere that, you know, the more care and thought you take in your interactions with people, the better off you're going to be. It's, it's when you don't do those things that these, you know, terrible consequences can happen. Well, you're writing this book in D.C., and, and, and you are, you know, in a very, uh, as you say, it's a very competitive atmosphere. Everybody, every, kids are competing with each other to get into the best schools. I mean, that's kind of the environment which you are writing in. So what about other parents? I mean, are you considered the expert about these kinds of topics? Some of them are taboo to these parents, or do they look at you with, uh, you know, chagrin. They don't. You're, you're sort of an outsider. They don't like it. Or what's the response to the other parents in your in your group and in your parent and your children's uh, group of, well, of friends? Uh, Catherine, that's a really excellent question. And the, the reality is that um, Phoebe and I use pen names, so we're, we actually are deep undercover right now. Um, and the reveal um, will happen soon enough, so people really don't know who we are. I mean, obviously, close friends and associates do. Um, it, it's not a cover that we have, you know, tried to cultivate, you know, very deeply, but um, it's one that allows some anonymity. So people don't really know that we're the ones talking about these issues, even though we, you know, see these people every day and are writing about our friends and neighbors. Um, So that is yet to be told. Um, But when I do talk, you know, to friends, whether in book group or, you know, at the office or anywhere, there is, I think, a universal theme, which is people really do care about these issues and want to know the path to take to manage them. The only difference I see, for example, in, you know, larger urban areas is people seem more reticent um, to acknowledge, again, that their children have any failings or that they may not know how to manage them. So Phoebe and I really have tried to remove that taboo and say, oh, my gosh, you know, all of our lives are in chaos and, and very messy at times, and let's all share that as a community and, and embrace it in a way. And we think, you know, we'll be better off and our kids will be better off for it. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think you guys are like the CI, I don't know, are you the F- FBI or <laughs> I'm not sure. You're undercover, but I'm thinking you're telling me you have four kids, and I'm thinking, okay, the 10-year-old isn't out there talking about what mommy does. Um, 
and right. revealing this is their a cover. Good yes. question. We just um, <laughs> did a you know a recent TV interview, so I think it's becoming more public now. And as if you know, as with any children, um, you know what mommy and daddy do doesn't seem very important um, until you know it's important to them. So now it's a little more interesting, I think. But um, I've always been surprised about how you know little import they take to what's going really on in my life. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I always remember in school, you know, you would go to school and tell your teacher what mommy and daddy did, you know. and the, That's the right. <laughs> armed with all kinds of information, some of which they didn't want to have. But, uh, okay, so you're slowly revealing yourself. I mean, if you were on television, you were on a television show. So where are you going to go with all this? Well, that is a great question, Catherine. You know, our intent in writing the book was not to, to suggest in any way that we were experts in the area, but what we're finding is this, this, these themes really resonate with people. And whether it's talking about, you know, our kids' use of, uh, you know, alcohol and marijuana or sexting or, you know, any everyday topic that involves our kids or our lives, um, people really do want more conversation around it. So we're happy to continue to engage in that conversation. We already have sort of a follow-up novel planned um, we're going to continue to blog so we're just we're sort of using this as a jumping off point and and we'll see where where we land you know I'm thinking about all the mothers and fathers who uh, who are working who aren't there who aren't there when their kids come home who have even if they have good help even if they have a great nanny or two nannies and four kids but it's still not the parents and so then the nannies and the people who are let's say uh, t- helping to care for the kids are the ones who also are going to be confronted with these kinds of issues, whether it's sexting or, as you mentioned, drugs, alcohol. I mean, it would seem to me they have to be no- knowledgeable as well. I think they do, and and one issue that can arise um, that we deal with a little bit in the book is how much honesty are you going to get from the people who work with you because they can feel like perhaps they have failed in their duty if your kids are doing this. So what you really want is to be able to have an honest conversation with them and tell them you don't hold them responsible, you just need to know so that you can work on it together, Um, which is why I think um, especially... Um, you know, in large urban areas, there can be a tendency to undervalue, you know, the help you have. I mean, some people obviously are eternally grateful because they couldn't do these high-powered jobs they do without the help they have. Um, but other people kind of try, again, to keep that all undercover and pretend that they're doing the job, raising the kids all by themselves. Um, and I think that's a mistake. I think you have to treat people who work with you as, you know, the most important supporting players in your lives because they may have, you know, equal influence over your kids. So this is perhaps an uncomfortable conversation you're going to have to have with your nanny about what your limits are, which frankly, especially if you have, you know, a younger person working for you may be different than the the limits they have in their own lives. Um, You know, in D.C., it's a common practice to hire a college student to babysit for your kids after school, um, and they may be doing some of the very sexting that um, that you don't want your kids participating in. So on the front end, it's really important, I think, to have that conversation about what limits you expect with your kids and what limits you expect them to have when they're with your kids. Yeah, I mean, that brings up, that is a whole other topic, I think. Uh, I mean, a, a whole other issue. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you are having, and I used to have college kids uh, babysitting, I remember. Uh, I usually, they often was at home and they were there, but as you say, it, the 
the values surrounding all of these issues are very different. I mean, it's, it's, there's, I guess there's just more leeway in terms of what's acceptable and what's not. I mean, it's not good if your kid's getting drunk every night. I mean, I don't think anyone would disagree with that or smoking pot every night or, but these issues are a little more difficult, I think, in terms of what your value are, values are. And the example you gave of the college kid, they have different values, I think, attached to sexting and some of these other topics. So, well, we've, our, our half hour is up. It's been great talking to you. I, I want to obviously mention the book again, book, blog, both, uh, uh, Desperate in D.C., Money, Marriage, and Manners in Washington, D.C. And the book, it's an e-book now, but the print version is coming out. Did you say, Crystal? in a month or probably a month or so we're doing final edits now and we will hope to launch it and all the details will be um, on our website terrific and the website uh, yeah we need to have a uh, what's the website it's www.desperateindc.com okay that's easy crystal walker thanks so much for being on the show today i really enjoyed talking to you Catherine. it was a pleasure it was a, a real privilege take good Great. care Thank you. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll, we'll be back in a minute. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm your host, 
Catherine Zox, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and joining me this morning in this uh, second half hour is Diane Johnson. She's author of Fly Over Lives. It's a memoir, and um, many of you, or most of you, are probably familiar with her other work. She's a two-time finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award in three different genres, essay, biography, and fiction, the author of a dozen novels, including Le Divorce, Le Mariage, and La Faire, and she is a frequent contributor to the New York Times Review of Books, and she splits her time between San Francisco and Paris, but as I understand it, she's in neither place right now. She's in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Diane. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Catherine. (laughs) Yes, I'm here in beautiful Washington, where it looks like the snow has begun again. Is that possible? There was so much snow yesterday. I think it's going to continue on throughout the winter, but, uh, you know, I guess that's okay. We we can get into climate change, but we're not going to talk about that, right? (laughs) No, right. right. We're going to talk about your book, Fly Over Lives, a memoir. And and the topic to me is interesting because I guess um, one of the things that you had written was that, uh, you know, most Americans really aren't too concerned about where they came from. And I guess hence the title, Fly Over Lives. We just kind of came from somewhere, but that's not important. It's What's important is what we're doing now. But you take kind of a different look at that, and and it's your own life in this book. Where did I, you came from the Midwest, uh, and you began to take a look at it, where you came from, and how that impacted on where you are today. So let's, um, I guess, start from the beginning. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to tell the story of how I happened to take that, uh, that look at uh, my life, and in particular, the Midwest. Uh, because uh, I was in France, and a French person said, oh, you Americans, you're not interested in where you came from or anything about your history. She was talking about American history, of course, and uh, from the point of view of somebody who has centuries of history that all French children are made to learn, and we've just got a couple hundred years, so maybe we could be excused. But she was talking about a kind of general lack of historical consciousness. And uh, I guess we have to plead guilty to that charge because, uh, as I guess I say in the book, we're always invading the wrong countries and, and making mistakes based on imperfect analysis, based on not understanding the history, like between Sunnis and Shiites or, you know, whatever. There's innumerable examples. Yeah, I think that when you said that's exactly what I was thinking about. I think if you just ask a person on the street what's the difference between a Sunni and a Shiite, nobody would know what you were talking about. And yet we went to war for 10, 12 years and spent trillions of dollars involved in in their struggle. But anyway, um, okay. Yeah. So that was a challenge to you. So that was a challenge to me, yeah. And then I knew at the same time that my mother had a bunch of stuff in the drawer, and she was interested, and my, my aunts were interested, so they would not be guilty of the charge. But they never really passed it on, uh, things about the family or, um, or much uh, of the content of these manu- what proved to be manuscripts and letters bequeathed uh, her and her sisters by grandmother, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and great-great-grandmother with some documents earlier than that. And they were very proud of these things and so on, but in fact it didn't really impact their lives. 
And so, um, so anyway, I knew all that stuff was there. And um, when I took, sat down and took a look at it, I, I couldn't help but think about these, the hard lives of women in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the pioneer areas of the Midwest where I grew up. So, you grew up in the Midwest. Yeah. When did you leave? At what point did you leave? And then when you did leave, I mean, it's been quite a while, so you're now writing the memoir. I mean, did you not want to look back? Or I came from the Midwest, and now, of course, it, I mean, it would appear you're leading a sophisticated life in San Francisco, Paris, and probably other places as well. So, like, did you just want to not, you know, some people just want to leave and forget about it for many reasons. So... Well, I didn't, I didn't leave in a huff, as it were. I was always restless as a child, thinking, oh, this is such a small town, and so on. You know, will I ever see Paris? Um, but when I did leave, it was just circumstance. My parents, my father was transferred to Oregon when I was 16, and I went off to college, and so there was just no occasion to go back to the Midwest, my, uh, except for some family funerals, things like that. And uh, and then I I married. I had children. My husband took me to France for his work, uh, and so I I didn't have a chance really to go back to the Midwest for a couple of until a couple of years ago, and then uh, I saw it all came kind of rushing back in congruence with uh, the grandmother diaries that I had read so far and. Um, uh, and the fact that I was sitting in the house where they had all lived, and, and people stayed in these small Midwestern towns. So part of my book is, it's not nostalgia for my personal life, but trying to to um, convey the charm and importance for the American character, sort of, of of this region, this this sturdy and, um, in its way, beautiful region, which other people dismiss as the flyover. Uh, so, <laughs> so it could have been called In Defense of Watsika. That was the title I was thinking of. Well, I mean, do you think people from Chicago would agree with you about that? I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Maybe they've never been to Watsika. And yeah. anyway, Chicago is more cosmopolitan. And, and has every kind of connection with the old country and so on. Large Polish communities, large community, now large Hispanic community and so on. But um, as a child, I went to Chicago exactly once in my life because we just didn't drive to Chicago to do, do shopping or whatever. And I think that was typical of many downstate Illinois kids. There was there was no reason to go to to Chicago, or so our parents thought. Yeah, so you were in your own hometown, small hometown, yeah, isolated, yeah. really isolated. Um, what about surprises? I mean, were there any surprises for you that were painful? I mean, when you go back and, you know, sometimes it's not always so, it, it would seem to me, so motivating or inspiring, you find out about your grandmother, your you know, great-grandparents, uh, you might find out some family secrets or where you fit in that town that you may not be pleased with when, if anybody else chooses to do that. Did you? <laughs> well, I didn't, unfortunately. I, um, 
I, I kind of looked around for something like that. Or I, I hoped for a little drama. And then I decided or realized that the lack of drama was almost the point. Um, no, there was, there was no drama. These people were, were mild, <laughs> regular folk, you know, kind of very Norman Rockwell. Not the best literary material, but also it was it was so much more beautiful. And you know how sometimes people say they go back to their hometown and they they couldn't believe how small their house seemed and how how uh, you know how shabby everything was. Well, I but Moline, it was actually kind of more spiffy than I remembered, and and now it had. Some refurbishments in the downtown area, and my house looked bigger than I had remembered, and and the food had improved. It was just all a better place than it had been when I was last there when I was sixteen, which was, was a long time ago. Yeah, so it had been done over, or re- yeah, or kept <laughs> up, kept up with the times anyway. So, well, I guess my question is, um, is this something that you, I mean, this is your memoir, you're glad you did it, there weren't any major revelations, I guess, except what you're saying is kind of like just understanding where you came from, and it was just a Norman Rockwell kind of existence. Um, it, do you, I mean, is this something that you, because you felt, I guess, compelled to do it because you felt challenged by what that French a friend said, you know, you don't know where you came from and you should, and Americans should know where they come from and they should care. Um, why should they care? I mean, why well, should they I, I guess yeah. they. I guess they really, uh, I guess there's no obligation to, except for the reasons that we mentioned a minute ago, that n- not knowing history, the, the, the famous maxim about uh, people who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it, which would imply a lot of unnecessary wars and and errors and building the wrong freeway in the wrong place and so on. And um, if, as, if as a habit of mind, Americans have the tendency to not learn from experience, which is what that maxim really says, then we'll just continue to blunder on. And so um, I think that, that history is a valuable study. And I think History itself validates the study of history, certainly. Whether politicians will ever learn about history, you know, we don't know. But but it wasn't just a challenge. Anyway, I had the normal, I think, uh, curiosity about my own past since I was so eager to get out of small-town America when I was a child. And I, I don't think I would like to go back and live there. I've become pretty urban in my my taste. Uh, but I see the the uh, I, I see that it's very relevant for the American big picture, and I think that people don't don't understand that region very well. I I carelessly said in my book, I guess nobody much writes flippantly said nobody much much writes about the the Midwest and. Um, the, a, a reviewer in the Chicago Tribune indignantly said, "Are you kidding? Mark Twain, Theodore Dreiser, Fitzgerald—you know—he named an enormous number of writers um, who 
came from the Midwest and, and wrote about the Midwest, Hemingway. Um, but what he didn't say or didn't admit was that all these writers had left the Midwest. Every single one of them, I think, without exception, lived somewhere else. So, obviously, this region, I don't know, doesn't give something to at least people who want to write, want to... No. Well, Warren yeah. Buffett still stays there, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He's, uh, is he in Nebraska? Yeah, he's in Nebraska, yeah. and, his, and his fund is, is as well. You know, I was thinking, you know, you're talking, I think it is important to know where you come from, and it gives you just an understanding of where you fit into all of this stuff in the universe. But I was thinking when I was, you know, um, obviously knew that I was going to interview you, like, I was thinking more on a personal level how marriage is today. People marry people not from their hometowns. They marry them from anywhere, whether any, you know, you may live in San Francisco, you marry somebody from Washington, D.C., or from Paris or Australia. And what is the impact of all of these these uh, people or these couples getting married and really not understanding where their potential partner or spouse does come from and how that impacts on their personality and, and themselves as a potential or as a, as a spouse or as a parent. Um, you know, that was real important, let's say, 100 years ago, 150 yes, years people ago. people used to say, oh, mixed marriage, and by that they meant... They might mean Catholic, Protestant, but they might yeah. mean Indiana and Illinois yeah. or something. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, that's an interesting point, that now people are seldom from the same hometown or the same background. It seems like the, all marriages or all American marriages are likely to be mixed. And then, of course, we have the high divorce rate, and the, uh, maybe because we don't understand enough about where the other person comes from. Mm-hmm. Or um, the person themselves doesn't have an awareness of well, where they and, come from. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. And tends to attribute to the spouse some problems that really arise from, you know, just the traits that you've inherited from your region or your religion or something. I think religiously mixed marriages are pretty well prepared for that. Um, that is, they're instructed about what to look out for and, and uh, how the other person will likely feel. One of our, we're a Protestant family, and one of our kids married a Catholic, and I remember that he had to undergo not exactly Catholic instruction, but many discussions with, uh, with counselors or something to... Um, to understand where his Catholic spouse will, how she will be feeling about things. Um, but that doesn't really happen, I don't think, in most of these so-called mixed marriages that we're talking about. Last night I was uh, at, at the Alliance Française in, in Washington, and the group that had, had gathered there um, was talking about mixed marriages, French and American, and all the misunderstandings and, and uh, uh, really uh, difficulties getting over, well, adjusting to the, the strange assumptions that the, yeah. the person in the other country. So uh, that was very, it was a very interesting discussion. 
Yeah, I, I think it, it, it definitely is. And I, I think it is something that uh, perhaps we as Americans need to address. And you talk about the high divorce rate. could bear. I, I, I think it is related to that. Um, what was the reaction? Just another question. What was the reaction of your family? Um, you know, you, you mentioned a husband, you mentioned children, um, when they knew that you were going to go back and uh, discover your past. Did anybody want to be involved in that? Oh, or? yes. Uh, two of my kids were, were free and could come with me, and they did. And that was, uh, and they, you know, these were snobbish, snobbish bi-coastal kids <laughs> who, who had never been to the Midwest and didn't think any more of it than it, than most people on the two coasts, uh, and instead they were thrilled. And they they sort of found it the way I found it to be, uh, especially the beauty. We went, It was in late August, early September, so the corn was brown, and they didn't get to see the beautiful green uh, cornfields, but they did see the effect of these immense... Uh, sections of corn and the beautiful green tractors and things and and then our house and oh they saw it all and they liked it um maybe so was, it a te- was it a, a kind of an aha moment attitude change because you talk about yes they're very you know well-heeled sophisticated you know who wants to go back to small town illinois um do you had an impact on changing their psyche and where they came from. Obviously, they came from yeah. you, but yeah, yeah, I think I think they <laughs> that expanded their their consciousness of where they do come from because they probably see things about me. Oh, she's so corn fed, and now we know why. Um, or or not. I don't know what they they didn't tell me what they they saw about me, but they they did. Um, I certainly gain in understanding and and also about just certain economics of America, all the, the breadbasket issues and um, and the old ho- the old houses where the family lived and the people who live in them now uh, let us come in and walk around. And my daughter, who works at the Smithsonian in, here in Washington, um, of course, was really thrilled to see a sofa that Aunt Henrietta had given the little local museum, that kind of thing. And so, oh, no, it was a very rich experience, and I think um, that everyone would profit from, from taking their kids back to the hometown. Maybe a lot of people do that routinely, but we just never had. I, I think some people do, and other people, as we said kind of in the beginning of the interview, I mean, some people don't want to go back for very specific reasons and, um, you know, have left, and that, that's it. They don't yeah, want to go back. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think a lot depends on if you had something traumatic or or bad or a family situation that was difficult, then, of course, you just want to put it behind you, and I understand that. And that wasn't really my situation. I, I just, uh, what I really deplored was the blandness of it all and, and the lack of of any book written after 1900, you know. <laughs> uh, so... So uh, I, I wanted to get out and expand my horizons, so-called, and, and that's what happened. And um, part of an expanded horizon, I guess, in, should include the, uh, the very first things that you knew and all the, the support system that probably launched you. 
Yeah, well, given that, and, and you are a famous, well-known, you know, on and on the accolades author um, and novelist, and now your memoir, what would you say, having gone back, was the biggest thing that, it, would you say that did impact on you to, to sort of um, help you become the writer that you are? Anything that you discovered then? Well, well I, I knew already what had helped me in my writing, which was, um, wonderful teachers, and I think a, a lot of writers would say that, and it's kind of a banal response. But it's um, the the support you get as a as a elementary school child, or or a junior high school child, or it's that one teacher that that singles you out and says, "Oh, that's a wonderful story. Write it, you know, write another." So. Um, that and the fact that Moline, Illinois, is, is kind of an arty little community anyway. It's a fairly prosperous bedroom community for um, for John Deere and other manufacturers of farm implements. And so there were a lot of executives, and there was a, a high level of uh, of support for public, good public schools, and that you know that kind of thing, sort of cultural. So you're wiping away, we only have a couple minutes, but th- that myth of, you know, you're, um, especially with young parents today, you have to send your kids to the best schools in kindergarten. They're taking entrance exams to get into these private schools. And here you are, uh, a Pulitzer, you know, you are a New York Times bestselling author and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And you're talking about your English teacher back in Moline, Illinois, uh, you know, that that was one of the most significant uh, people in your life in terms of your career. So... Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and and but of course that was then, uh, you know, and I and it, that was a small town. Probably good schools in small time, towns continue, but but uh, the urban situations are are difficult. And I sent my children to private schools. They, you know, they were raised in in the Bay Area of uh, of California, and you know Berkeley, and then. And San Francisco and Los Angeles because we moved twice. Um, and there's a lot of competition. Yeah, to, yeah, exactly. Well, it wasn't kinds, competition; yeah. it was just the deterioration of the public schools mm-hmm. with the uh, you know the problems that that uh, the public schools strug- struggle with, sort of violence. Diane, and, uh, we have to um, get ready to say goodbye. I mean, I want to, and so I do want to make sure, um, obviously, that listeners know the title of the book, Flyover Lives, Diane Johnson, a memoir. And also, uh, Diane, where can we, what website should we go to for more information about the book and about you? Oh, my God, I have to, I have to work on the website. <laughs> I think go to Viking. Viking is the publisher, or Amazon, I guess, has a, a little picture of the jacket, and, and um, it may by now have a little description. So this uh, it's only been out a couple of days, so so, so it's I better off the press. Yeah, yeah, I, so, yeah. Okay, yeah. Or just Google fly flyover lives, and, and maybe something will come up, and I'm going to go do that myself right now. Good. Right. <laughs> well, it was great talking to you. I I, I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank it seemed you. to go so fast, but I yeah, it did. It went yeah. very fast. Diane Johnson, flyover lives. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, uh, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. 
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.